Yeah. Speaking of phrases that maybe we don't understand what they are, have you heard of this new social media thing called, I was today years old when I found out? All the young people just said yes. So there's this thing, it's like, I think they're TikToks, or I'm not exactly sure where they are, but there's like this thing, sometimes you see them on Facebook, where these videos will pop up, and they'll be like, I was today years old when I found out that, and so I was doing a little bit of watching these videos this week, and it's crazy, you guys, stuff that you had no idea what it was meant for and the way it was designed to be. So the biggest one I learned this week as I was watching these silly videos was that, um, so I'm Italian, I love pasta. I cook pasta all the time. So I think my family gets a little tired of it but because uh, it's always my go-to. Did you know that on pasta spoons, you guys have a pasta spoon like has the forks on it that helps you get the pasta out of the thing? And that a true pasta spoon has holes in it? So I thought, right, it's for the water to go out. Did you know that those are meant so that you can measure what Stop shaking your heads that you guys knew what this was. It's so you can measure how much, how a pound of pasta, you can measure how much. Kaboom! I was today years old when I found out here's what a pasta spoon really is for. My hope for us, church, is that you will look back on March 2022. And you will say, I was today years old when I learned what the book of Jonah was really about. What is the point of the book of Jonah? For some reason, and this is probably worth processing, the church has come to this place where only kids in our kids' ministry engage with Old Testament stories. And I don't know about you, but when I grew up, and learn those stories, it seemed like we often changed the stories to either hide the hard meanings or we just made them super moralistic. I'm thankful for our kids' men team and everyone who works back there who actually works on bringing the gospel to bear in our Old Testament stories for our kids so that they can understand the reality and the truth of these stories. But today, I want to press in on our interaction with the book of Jonah. Because I think for many of us, it's just a kid's story. <laughs> now, I'm not here to be critical of Veggie Tales, and I'm not here to be critical of those things, but I wonder what you think the point of the book of Jonah is. You see, for many of us, we think the book of Jonah is about a fish. We're actually, the fish is the tiniest part of the story in the book of Jonah. But we do this, don't we? I mean, this is kind of a, a pattern that we have in our churches sometimes. I mean, think about creation. We look at the story of creation and all of a sudden it becomes this debate and this interaction about was it a literal six days and how do we unpack is evolution true or not and we prove that it's not because of that when, when the whole point of Genesis chapter 1 really doesn't have anything to do with that. Or we, or we look at Jesus turning water into wine and it turns into this conversation about, well, did Jesus make real alcohol or was it watered down alcohol? And, and all of a sudden it's like this most amazing and beautiful story about Jesus breaking into the world to tell us about what he's about to do and all of a sudden we're talking about alcohol. And when we talk about Jonah, 
if I asked you, what is the book of Jonah about? I would have said, it's about a fish. Sometimes we need to be reminded that the word of God is a beautiful and complex communication from him to his people and so much more than just a kid's story. It's a symphony. I love this moment on the stage, actually, just to refer back to it. When, when they were singing that harmony of, oh, how I need you, and then they took it up just a little bit, like the complexities of what was happening on the stage between the drums and Jonathan on the keys and Ethan on the guitar, like all of that coming together to rise in this beautiful moment of expression, that actually the word of God is that as well. So I want to invite you today to something different. I'm going to tell you the story of Jonah. I'm going to retell it. And I'm going to ask some questions and prompt some thoughts in you that I'm not going to answer. I'm actually just going to leave it hanging. Because, like DJ mentioned, over the next weeks, we're going to dig and put a microscope on each one of these chapters. But I think it's important for us to see the bigger picture so we can really understand what really is happening here in the book of Jonah. And so, spoiler alert, Jonah is dangerous. God wants to do spiritual surgery in all of our lives. And what that means is we have to come to terms with the dark shadows of our soul. And we need God to shine his light into our problem, diagnose us, and then cut into us. And then God's deepest desire is to bring healing to you and to me through his mercy. Do you need God's mercy today? Let's find out. Jonah, chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their, for their evil has come up before me. So what do we learn here quickly? Jonah is a prophet. He's actually mentioned in the book of 2 Kings, so that we know that he lived in the time of Israel and when he lived. And prophets are significant in the story of God. They play an important role of bringing the message from God to God's people. But it's an interesting account here, the story of Jonah. It's the one prophet that's different than all the other prophets for a couple of reasons. One is, Jonah isn't bringing a message to God's people. And the second reason is, actually, this isn't a story necessarily about the message Jonah is bringing. It's a story about Jonah. So on the surface, we might think this is about the message he's bringing, but, and, it, and we'll find out soon that he's bringing that to the enemies of God's people. But we'll see here that actually this is a story of Jonah and his journey with this message. And so from the get-go, we see that Jonah is a story about a prophet and his story. Now, one quick note, Jonah, the son of Amittai, it's important that that's phrase in the Bible, names mattered in the Old Testament especially. All throughout culture in the world, names have mattered. They had meaning. So the name Jonah means dove, and son of Amittai means son of faithfulness. 
Now, if you know anything about the story of Jonah and what's about to happen is that those two things do not describe Jonah at all. That he is not nice and he is not faithful. And so immediately what should be happening here for the readers and was for Israel when they read the book of Jonah was that they saw this as a satire. That actually it was in some ways meant to be comedic, although dangerous. Verse 3, Jonah rose, the dove, the son of faithfulness, rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Why did Jonah flee? Was he scared? Was he stubborn? Didn't he know that he couldn't run? I mean, he would have known the Psalms pretty well. Psalm 139, where can I flee from your presence, O God? Why do you run from God? Well, Jonah decided he was going to flee. And not just flee, he decided that he was going to go to Tarshish. Now, let me show you a map of Tarshish real quick so you can see. Jonah is in Joppa. And God has said, I want you to go to Nineveh with this message. And so instead of going to Nineveh, what he decides is, nope, I'm going to pay this fee and I'm going to go to Tarshish, 2,500 miles away. And, and so as the, the writer of Jonah, what he's trying to help us understand here is Jonah had a short distance to go and he decided to go the completely, this is unbelievably a big distance far away from God. Some commentators argued that Tarshish actually had this presence in the culture that back day, that that was where the good life was, that Tarshish actually represented the good life. And so Jonah, what's happening here is Jonah didn't want the life God wanted for him. Oh, parts of it he wanted. He was proud to be an Israelite, but he thought life was found somewhere else. Jonah thinks that he's running to life by going to Tarshish, but actually he's running from life. Tim Mackey, the, one of the authors and writers in the Bible Project, he said this, Jonah thinks he is running for his life, but he's running from life. When Jesus calls us to follow him, he's saying, you have to die to your form of life. And Jonah isn't just running and fleeing. He doesn't want what God has for him. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down in the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now there's a picture we might miss with the literature here and what's going on. And the word is actually repeated over and over and over. And it's this word down. And so Jonah, who's running, we're still wondering why is he running. He, the image is, he went, says literally, he went down to Joppa. He went down to the boat. 
He went down to sleep, and then it says he went into a deep sleep. It's actually he went down in sleep is a literal Hebrew word there. And we should be starting to get a taste of why Jonah is fleeing. There's this, this stubbornness to God, this, this real resistance to him, a, a putting off of what God wants. And here's Jonah, the dove, the faithful one. Being compared to pagans. There's an intentional contrast we should see here. The pagans are ready to submit to God, and Jonah isn't. Can I point something out here that should be concerning to us? Maybe just a quick sidebar. Who suffers because of Jonah's apathy? Because of Jonah's resistance, because of Jonah's fleeing. Others. Jonah is a relational wrecking ball, and he has no idea. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Which to me is hysterical that they would say, what do you do? And where do you come from? And what is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they cast lots to try to figure out whose fault this is. And Jonah won or lost, depending on how you want to look at it. And they try to figure out what's happening. And they ask him these crazy questions. Who are you? And Jonah answers. And when Jonah answers, how do you think he said this? With what tone do you think came out of his mouth when he said, I am a Hebrew? And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And as a reader, we should be thinking, oh, the irony, Jonah, because the sailors get it. They're like, you, what? You're the one who serves the God of the sea? You? Then what are you doing? And we see their humility and fear of the creator of the universe, and we see on this other side what? Jonah's disdain. We can't help but read that he would say, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord who made these things. One commentator wrote, the wonder is that Jonah can recite such a creed and yet show disrespect to the commands of God whose sovereignty it celebrates. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. I practice saying that word, and it's still hard to say. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. 
Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Jonah wants to die. He feels so strongly against what God wants him to do that he's willing to just die. Starting to feel it a little bit, aren't we? Jonah, I mean, Jonah, bro, come on. It's the God of the universe. Shake out of it. Wake up. We start to ask, why are you behaving this way? What's wrong with you? I mean, if it were us, right, we would be like quick to turn. And if that's what you would say, you've just fallen into the trap of Jonah. Have you ever had a contradiction in your life? where you said something and then believed another? Have you ever known what God wanted for you but did exactly the opposite? And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Something happened here that we should all recognize God's mercy towards his people is ruthless. He truly does want us and Jonah to experience life. And so God orchestrated a circumstance in history to teach Jonah something he desperately needed to know. This was not an act of punishment, but preservation. What do you think Jonah needed to know? When you consider your life, do you see that the most important lessons we have learned are usually and can often come in the result of God's severe mercies to us? Chapter 2, Jonah prays. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, <clears throat> his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. 
When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, is that a prayer of repentance? It's complicated. It's complicated. And there are some really beautiful pieces here in this prayer. Jonah, in his prayer, actually voices that he sees the fish as God's deliverance, that God saved him. And there's, there's not a petition here in this prayer. Jonah's just giving thanks to God in some ways. There's an acknowledgement at the end that salvation belongs to God, and Jonah will do. It's this expression. We see it actually in chapter 3, that he will now do what God wants him to do. And if the story ended there, Maybe we could say what a beautiful picture of God's mercy to change the heart of Jonah. Change the heart of Jonah. Change the heart of Jonah. Isn't that what repentance is? It's a turning from where I think life is found to God's way of life and putting my faith in what God has for me and wants for me. That isn't the end of this prayer. And that's why this prayer is complicated. I mean, first, did you notice how many times Jonah uses the word I or me in this prayer? In eight verses, he mentions himself 23 times. Also, let's come back to Jonah's problem quickly. Is the problem that Jonah didn't go to Nineveh? That God just wanted Jonah to go? Or is God's severe mercy on a path to do surgery on the heart of Jonah? And if so, we come back to the question, why did Jonah flee? If I can just pause for a second. Don't many of us treat our Christian life somewhat like this? I messed up. God, I'm sorry. I'll try to never do it again. And then the next week or the next day or the next hour, we're right back where we were. Was God interested in Jonah's behavior? Or did God want Jonah to have life, and in order for him to experience life, he needed to get into Jonah and expose why he wouldn't go to Nineveh? Did Jonah repent? I actually think it's a false question. It's not a fair question. Because repentance isn't just a one-time act. Sometimes there is repentance for behavior. But the real work of repentance should drive us to more reflection on where did that come from? Why is that the fruit of what's in my heart and in my life? That the gospel of God wants to do a work in us that should transform us from the inside out. And so if all we're looking at is behaviors, we're missing what the whole purpose and point of repentance is. 
God didn't just want Jonah to go to Nineveh. There's something here more still that we haven't unpacked yet or seen. Well, take two. The Lord spoke to the fish, and the fish vomited Jonah out on the land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Nineveh is one of the cities of the Assyrians, the biggest, baddest empire of the day. And one that actually is still studied today. They were ruthless. One of the most evil empires in history. They conquered the world through their military might. And the way that they worked, the way that they attacked was brutal and went against, if we were to have one, like today it would be, they would go against everything in the Geneva Convention. That what they did to conquer was awful. And the people of Israel despised the people of Assyria. They were enemies. One commentator wrote, The notorious brutality of the Assyrians was such as to make the surrounding people shudder with a sickly terror of ever falling prey to them. There is no one more evil, more destructive, and more due of judgment than Nineveh. And so Jonah goes, and he does what God asks. Well, sort of. Check this out. Jonah began to go into this city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So Jonah goes to Nineveh, the most ruthless, evil city in the world, and preaches the shortest sermon ever preached in the history of mankind. Revival. Boom. People repent. I mean, can we just unpack this for just one second, what's happening here? I mean, Jonah, this, it's eight English words. Eight English words. Yes, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's only five words in Hebrew. The Hebrew is only five words. He preaches the five words. So we have a preaching core. We talk about this. We gather together to talk about our sermons and reflect on our sermons. And so let's do a little sermon cohort reflection together as a church this morning if we can. Okay, we, we like to ask, is the sermon clear? Was it relevant? And was it forceful? Okay, was it clear? Well, who's going to get overthrown? Well, it doesn't really say. He just said... Well, okay, Nineveh's going to be overthrown, but who's going to do it? Well, he didn't say God was going to do it. And we don't know who's going to do it. Okay, well, we don't know. So that wasn't really clear in your sermon, Jonah. Okay, well, why are they being overthrown? Well, well, that's not really in there. That wasn't really clear, Jonah. It was not really clear what was happening there. So, okay, is it relevant? Well, maybe, because they're going to be overthrown, but... He didn't say they were doing anything wrong. He didn't expose any problems that was happening there. And was it forceful? He doesn't even tell him what to do. 
He just says, it's going down. And revival breaks out. Now, if you think that maybe I'm doing a little bit of exaggeration here, that's what the intention of the writer is trying to help us think. Wait a second. Jonah walks in here and he speaks these five words and revival of the most evil, vile people on the planet happens. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This revival is so big, even the animals are repenting. (laughs) And God relents. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Can we just point out that in this story, nobody is acting the way they're supposed to? God's dove, his faithful prophet, is running and stubborn. The pagans, the one who reject God, they're crying out to God. The enemies of God, They're turning to God. For Jonah, so so for, for the enemies of God, for Nineveh, it took five Hebrew words, eight English words. For Jonah to at least sort of do what God asked him to do, it took him getting swallowed by a fish in the sea for three days. Look at how God works to use his people to redeem the world, right? That's what we would say if this is where the story ended. Oh, man, look, this is amazing. Yeah, Jonah was stubborn. He got swallowed by a fish, but then he did what God wanted him to do, and he went, and look, Nineveh, they, it happened. Revival. Wow. But why did Jonah flee? Why did Jonah resist God? Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Can we go back to Jonah's five-word sermon just really quickly here? What do you think he was doing when he preached that sermon? He was doing as little as possible. Why? Because he didn't want God to be merciful. They didn't deserve mercy. 
Jonah enjoyed preaching wrath to them so they would get it. He couldn't wait for the hammer to fall on them. And now, Jonah's heart is revealed. What do we see in his anger? That his anger isn't just about not listening to God. Although that is part of it. He thinks he's better than Nineveh. He thinks he's more worthy than Nineveh. He thinks he deserves God's mercy and they deserve God's judgment. And the one word that we use for this is the word self-righteous. Self-righteousness is the belief that the way I see everything, the way I understand everything, is the right way. And I don't need to change, you do. And Jonah's self-righteousness was so dark in the shadows of his soul that it was expressed in contempt. Contempt. It's the feeling that a person is beneath consideration, worthless, or deserving scorn. When was the last time you wanted someone to face judgment? When was the last time you felt such scorn for someone in your life that you, well, maybe you wouldn't have said it out loud, but you wanted them to face some kind of judgment? And frankly, if it wasn't God who was going to do it, well, then you would. I'll shut them out. I'll give them the silent treatment. I'll talk about them behind their back. I'll let others know how ruthless and evil they are and undeserving of mercy. Friends, do you know why the sin of self-righteousness is so dangerous? It's because it's the very anti-gospel posture that is the hardest to see. Because when you're right, you're not wrong. And what does God do? He three times presses into the heart of Jonah. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. God asks Jonah a question, and he just ignores him. He doesn't even answer his question. Take two. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. The only time in the book of Jonah that he has any happiness is when he's under this plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than live. But God said to Jonah, 
do you well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry and angry enough to die. Self-righteousness is so dangerous that it cannot just lead to the contempt of others, but it can lead to the contempt of God. But God, in his mercy, keeps pressing. In his unrelenting mercy to do surgery on the darkest parts of Jonah's hearts, on our hearts, presses in one more time. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? The end. Okay. Let's do a little work here. God does not accept Jonah's response to leave him alone. He won't let Jonah stay in his stubbornness, his selfishness, his contempt, and his self-righteousness. God is too holy and too loving to allow Jonah to remain as he is or where he is. And God asks the cliffhanger question. You don't want me to have compassion on Nineveh, but shouldn't I? In light of all I've shown you, Jonah, shouldn't I love this city? And shouldn't you join me in that? Jonah thinks that Ninevites are the worst wretched sinners on the entire planet. But in this story, who is the most hard-hearted, hateful person? God is gently engaging with his people to show that just because you are a part of the kingdom, it does not excuse your religious hypocrisy. In the kingdom of God, enemies are loved, and there is no room for religious pride. Jonah can't see. He's the bad guy. Because that's what self-righteousness does to us. When we're wronged by people, we make them the problem. We boil everything down to evil, and we are the good ones. We are the right ones. Walter Wink, theologian and commentator, he wrote this. Our friends seldom show us our flaws. They are our friends, precisely because they are able to overlook or ignore those parts of us. Our enemy might actually be the way to God. We cannot come to terms with our own inner shadows except through our enemies. We have almost no other access to those unacceptable parts of ourselves that need redeeming except through the mirror that our enemies hold up to us. Church, is this a message about a fish, about Nineveh, about sailors? Maybe. 
Or is this a message to the people of God who have lost their way? A people who look at the rest of the world with contempt and longing for God to bring his judgment upon them. Is this a story about how the church looks at the world and says, we're better than them and they don't deserve God's grace and mercy. So God, come quickly so they can get what they deserve. And the moment you start saying, I don't think like that. I'm not like Jonah. Well, then you've shown your true heart. Because do you know who it is that deserves judgment? It's those who don't think they do. And God exposing that is an act of mercy. Do you need God's mercy? Would you pay attention this week to who brings you angst, apprehension, nervousness, who stirs in you contempt? And when you hear God say to you in that moment, you're in need of my mercy, and I will show you my mercy. Because God, he demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while yet we were still self-righteous, while we were still contemptuous, while we were still stubborn and selfish and angry, Christ died for you and he died for me so that we could experience his mercy. And should not God pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Let's pray. Almighty God, may we be a people of humility. Father, would you crush the self-righteousness that it lingers so deeply in our souls and expose us this week, expose us that yes, the people who are against you need mercy. And that means so much to we as well. And that if we would truly experience your mercy, our cry would be to show mercy to others as well. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he knew how self-righteous we would be. <laughs> And even knowing how dark our souls are and how quickly we want to turn from God and think that we would be better in his seat, he still chose to die for us. Come have mercy on us, we pray. In Jesus' name.